Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, all of it brought to you by Honey. No, not the stuff made by bees, although that is delicious. Uh, we're talking about joinhoney.com slash martini. It's the free way to save money when shopping online. Much more on that in just a moment. Jim, I'm sad to tell you that there's a book besides Between Two Scorpions that folks should really, really get, even though it's not out yet. Yours I've actually read and I can recommend, but General Mattis also has a book coming out, and I have a feeling it's going to be pretty good. It's called Call Sign Chaos, Learning to Lead. And while it's not out yet, there's an excerpt today in the Wall Street Journal, and parts of it are definitely getting a lot of attention in the political world. A lot of people assume it's a a veiled slap directly at President Trump. Others would say the system in general. My reading is the system in general, which Trump is certainly part of. So here's uh, what he says towards the end of this excerpt. Unlike in the past, where we were unified and drew in allies, currently our own commons seems to be breaking apart. What concerns me most as a military man is not our external adversaries. It's our internal divisiveness. We are heading into hostile tribes, cheering against each other, fueled by emotion and a mutual disdain that jeopardizes our future, instead of rediscovering our common ground and finding solutions. All Americans need to recognize that our democracy is an experiment and one that can be reversed. We all know that we're better than our current politics. Tribalism must not be allowed to destroy our experiment. And then the very last line of the excerpt, on each of our coins is inscribed America's de facto motto, e pluribus unum, from many one. For our experiment in democracy to survive, we must live that motto. Now, the bad news here, Jim, is that everybody involved in tribalism is going to say, see, other side, he's talking to you. But uh, hopefully everyone listens here. Yeah, um, I think this is probably, first of all, I'm, I'm very eager to read this book. Uh, I felt like uh, Secretary Mattis was uh, really one of the most underrated figures in this administration. Um, besides the bits of humor, uh, everyone remembers all the times we would do. You know, I was tempted to say, Greg, that James Mattis is begging you with tears in his eyes to buy this book. <laughs> um, but you know, but in addition to the, the humorous bits, I think he was a good Secretary of Defense. And he writes very directly in these excerpts. Uh, that he did not expect to be picked Secretary of Defense. He wasn't really looking for the job, but the Trump and Pence reached out to him. He had some pleasant conversations. He made clear where he had disagreed with the president in the past, uh, but he felt a duty to serve and did the best he could. He felt like, well, I'm going to make my case to the president. We'll see where he you know, can be brought around to agree and where he doesn't agree. And he clearly was able to do that for some time. And then he writes, you know, very, that at some point it was very clear his arguments were not penetrating. The president was not interested, perhaps most notably in standing by America's allies that have stood by them. I think this is one of the fairer criticisms uh, of this president. I I think this is exactly the right tone because Mattis, as far as we can tell, at least in this excerpt, he's not saying don't vote for Trump. He's not saying uh, America vote for Democrats. He's not saying, you know, it's it's not, it doesn't appear to be a tell-all. He's not, at least so far, at least what we've seen James Mattis is just saying, this is the state of the country. This is what troubles me. This is what worries me uh, from you know what I've seen and what I've experienced. And this is what I think we need to do. And I think that's exactly what the country needs to hear. I saw somebody on, on Twitter earlier today kind of saying, 
if the alternative to Trump, either in a Republican primary or as an independent, was not Joe Walsh or Mark Sanford or William Weld or any one of these guys who was really uh, far from ideal for the traditional conservative. And if the alternative was Mattis, I think you'd be looking at a really, it would completely transform the 2020 race. I think there are a decent number of Republicans who are sticking with Trump because they see no better options. But a man like James Mattis could very well be a better option. Now, of course, there's no indication that Mattis wants to do this. And in fact, it sounds like he never wants to go anywhere near Washington, D.C. ever again. It's hard to begrudge him that. No, it sounds like a good book. And, you know, when you talk about, uh, compared to the Scaramucci's of the world, the Omarosa's, you know, people who have worked for this president and had disagreements and ultimately left because of this disagreements, Selling Mattis really threads that needle in taking the right tone of saying what he thinks and being honest about it, but it's not a trashing the place on your way out the door and you know, full of you know sour grapes and, and bitterness and all of that. Uh, I really look forward to reading the whole thing, Greg. So there was one grown up in Washington during this whole ordeal, so uh, that's good to know, but he's not there anymore. So Well, national unity would be nice, but next to national unity... Saving money on your online purchases is obviously the next best thing. And that's where Honey comes in. Have you ever bought something online only to find out later that you missed a discount because you didn't know about it and there wasn't a chance to uh, apply coupons without having to search for them? Well, those worries are now over because Honey is a free browser add-on, yes, I said free, that finds everyone the best deals online. The app magically auto-applies the best deal to your cart at checkout. You don't have to go searching for anything. And Honey finds discounts and coupons across 37,000 different sites. We're talking about Amazon, Best Buy, Sephora, Nike, Expedia, Forever 21, Groupon, Adidas, even Pizza Hut. You can get discounts on your pizza thanks to Honey. Uh, Rich McFadden, he sits in for me once in a while when I'm not here for the three martini lunch. He's also one of my bosses here, and uh, he has this to say about it. As the primary Amazon purchaser for our company, I don't have the time to search the net for coupons and comparing pricing. Honey is a gift for managers who want to make sure they are getting the best price but don't have all day to compare and shop on the web. Honey does it for me. Honey has saved its 10 million members an average of $28.61. Honey members have already saved more than $800 million. Not bad for something that's completely free and takes just two clicks to install. Honey has more than 100,000 five-star reviews on the Google Chrome store. And Time Magazine calls Honey, quote, basically free money, unquote, which is, you know, pretty darn appealing. (laughs) Absolutely. So really, there's no reason not to try Honey. You get discounts. It's free to install. Oh, and by the way, they don't sell your info to other people, in case you're wondering about that. It's free to use, easy to install, just two clicks. Shop with confidence. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash martini. That's joinhoney.com slash martini. Honey, the smart shopping assistant that saves you time and money when you're shopping online. All right, Jim, we know that uh, as we turn to our bad martini here, that the 2020 cycle is going to be fairly challenging for Republicans in a number of ways. First of all, you've got the presidential race. And I saw one story on Drudge today that all of the top-tier Democratic presidential candidates, right now anyway, are at least nine points ahead of President Trump. In the meantime, Democrats have control of the House, and the odds of Republicans winning that back in 2020 don't look fantastic. So Republicans are also trying to make sure that they hang on to the Senate. So in case things don't go well in the House and the White House, they at least have that as a stopgap against whatever the Democrats might want to foist upon the American people. So right now it's a 53-47 split. Republicans 
are defending uh, quite a few seats this year because they did quite well in 2014, as you might remember. And now they have one more to defend. Johnny Isaacson, who was first elected in 2004, replacing the favorite Democrat maybe of all time on the three martini lunch, and that's Zell Miller when he retired in 2004. Johnny Isaacson won that year, won a re-election twice, but now he is retiring at the end of the year. He's almost 75 years old, and he's battling a growing pile of health problems. He says his Parkinson's is advancing. He had a fall recently where he fractured some bones, and he also recently had surgery to deal with a cancerous growth on his kidney. So Johnny Isaacson is dealing with some very severe health problems. He's been a pretty reliable uh, vote for Republicans, not only in the Senate, but in the House before that. He's the guy who won the special election in the House to replace Newt Gingrich way back when. But that means that uh, Governor Brian Kemp gets to appoint a temporary senator at the end of this year. But it also means under Georgia law that the seat becomes open at the next regularly scheduled uh, congressional election, which would be the fall of 2020. And oh, by the way, there's already a Senate seat on the ballot that year. That's the David Perdue seat that he currently holds. He's running for re-election, so there will be an open seat in Georgia come 2020 for the other Senate seat. You've got the stalwart conservative at the Washington Post, Jen Rubin, saying with, <laughs> with exclamation points, Sally Yates and Stacey Abrams, in case you weren't sure they're not conservatives. But Stacey Abrams, Jim, I see on Twitter that you're not buying this completely, says she's not a candidate for either one of these seats. But uh, nonetheless, it's sad to see Johnny Isaacson going through these problems and Republicans having to play more defense. Yeah. And look, you know, uh, Republicans obviously are pleased that Kemp won. And, you know, as we said, there's a 50,000 vote margin, uh, not within the margin of cheating or fraud or, or anything along those lines. But uh, look, that, you know, it still meant Stacey Abrams came closer than almost any Democrat has come in, in Georgia. I want to say about 20 some years, I mean, a really long stretch. Now, her statement uh, came out shortly after the announcement it was pretty straightforward. Uh, our thoughts are with Senator Isaacson and his family. Leader Abrams' focus will not change. She will lead voter protection efforts in key states across the country and make sure Democrats are successful in Georgia in 2020. While she will not be a candidate herself, she is committed to helping Democratic candidates win both Senate races next year, end quote. Now, look, I, I, that seems pretty definitive. Um, I think it's pretty clear she you know, was not, she, she had the choice of running in the Senate race that uh, was already scheduled for this year. I do wonder if she will change her mind on this, though, Greg, because for starters, you know, in addition to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, basically every big name Democrat uh, is going to want her to run for this race. She's probably certainly the, uh, the candidate with the biggest national profile. She probably would have a big inundation of, of uh, funds and national fundraising network. Media, by and large, loves her. Media sure as heck isn't going to challenge her on her claim that she actually won and that somehow 50-some thousand votes were erased or done away with or suppressed or stolen or, or God knows what. You figure, in addition to all the big names, you know, maybe, maybe President Obama, maybe, you know, Biden, there was this talk Biden was going to offer her the running mate slot. Uh, I try to wrap this up early. Um, you know, everybody in the Democratic Party is going to want to see Stacey Abrams running for that seat. The other fair question is, when will she have a better chance to win than an open Senate seat this year? Maybe you could argue the presidential race is probably going to bring out the Trump voters and turnout's going to be really high and and all that. But Georgia was one of those states where, yeah, it's traditionally red, but Trump doesn't run particularly well in the suburbs of big metropolitan areas. And that certainly fits Atlanta. That's how John Ossoff, who couldn't win the, uh, the suburban seat in the special election, well, you know, um, they ended up losing that in the 2018 midterms. You know, Georgia is not a, as long as Republicans are not strong in the suburbs, 
a whole bunch of these red states don't look so red. So if you're Stacey Abrams, you know, that's, that's a sign of opportunity knocking. You gotta, uh, I, I think you'd have to take that, but you know, we'll see. She says she's not interested. Maybe she's had enough, but uh, maybe she prefers being a political celebrity to an actual candidate. I do think if she lost this, uh, it would probably do quite a bit of damage to her, uh, her reputation here. But uh, uh, either way, look, if you're the Republican National Senatorial Committee, you got you got another big headache to deal with, and uh, you know you got to figure too many opportunities. Uh, Democrats have a good chance of picking a bunch of these off. I'm just wondering if Stacey Abrams is watching the Beto O'Rourke factor, uh, this flame that uh, burns so brightly for the media in Texas, and uh, now that he's running against a bunch of other Democrats. Of course, uh, it's it's not quite as uh, shimmering of coverage, but he's pretty much flopped in that. So I'm just wondering if she thinks if she. Uh, becomes the leader of this fantasy fair fight group and effort in Georgia and around the country, it actually keeps her profile higher than if she would actually run, because if she loses again statewide, uh, that leaves her in a position where she's not nearly the figure uh, that she is now. And uh, you look at midterm 2018, that's kind of a perfect storm for Democrats, because Republicans controlled everything in Washington. The Democrats are fuming because they hate Trump and Republican control, and you have to wonder whether the conditions will be just as good in 2020. I think they're favorable in a lot of places, but I'm not sure they'll be quite as as good as they were in 2018. So I think she's trying to preserve her stature. Now, of course, if she ends up running, I'm completely wrong on this. But are there any names that jump to mind on the Republican side for you, Jim? Because I'm seeing some folks, I assume tongue-in-cheek, throwing out names like Newt and and Herman Cain and so forth. And the Republicans in the House delegation are relatively young. I mean, we had quite a bit of experience there for a long time with the likes of Jack Kingston and Tom Price, who eventually became and then had to resign as HHS secretary. So it's a younger batch now. And I don't know if they have the, the kind of name recognition they might need for a statewide run. Yeah, Greg, let me start by giving my response to the possibility of a Herman Cain for Senate 2020 campaign in German. Nine, <laughs> nine, nine. Um, you know, there, look, I, I realize that in a moment like this, political observers first thought goes, all right, well, who are the big names? Who, who, who's already got name recognition? Who's already got a fundraising network? Who's already there? You know, John James was a fairly unknown guy up in Michigan, and uh, he ran really well in 2018. Didn't win, but uh, he's running again against, you know, the much lesser known Gary Peters. Uh, Gary Peters is a senator from Michigan. Little known fact. Yeah, it turns out it's true. A little bit of trivia. Um, <laughs> and we're not we're nowhere near as well known as Debbie Stabenow. That's when you know you're fairly obscure by senatorial standards. <laughs> Gary Peters sounds like a, like a pen name you use at the hotel when you don't want to use your real name. You don't want people to know you're beating somebody. Based on that experience, I think it might be worth if you got some young up and rising star, somebody with an impressive life experience outside of politics, uh, maybe some veteran, somebody who's, you know, maybe he's been a, you know, started a business and some sort of great, great classic American success story. You know, I, I might say, go give that a shot. Give that a look. Um, you know, I'm sure there are some fine state legislators out there. And my guess is you'll probably get some. You know, I have not had a chance to really look at every potential possibility. But uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with looking at occasional new blood and fresh faces, and uh, kind of give somebody who you know, uh, somebody who can turn heads and who's you know done something with their lives outside of the political arena, 
uh, I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss that option, particularly in a state like Georgia, right? Yeah, I look forward to seeing who gets in. I'm sure it'll be a free-for-all here, uh, given the news. Uh, you mentioned Gary Peters uh, running against John James. I think the the Peters campaign is a little bit nervous, and I, I say that because I just saw a profile of Senator Peters, which points out in very vivid detail about how much he loves to ride a Harley. And we always know that when a Democrat's in trouble, it's that they wear cowboy <laughs> boots, they drive a truck, or they ride a Harley. It's uh, They're just like you. I have handled a gun once. <laughs> And I own a cowboy hat. <laughs> Ergo, I am a real American, just like you, rural voter. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And this is a story that certainly got Twitter buzzing yesterday. New York Post with the breaking news exclusive. A Washington, D.C. mom says her political consultant husband left her for Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, according to a bombshell divorce filing obtained by the New York Post. Dr. Beth Jordan Minette says her cheating spouse, Tim Minette, told her in April that he was having an affair with a Somali-born U.S. representative and that he made a shocking declaration of love for the Minnesota congresswoman before he ditched his wife, alleges the filing submitted in D.C. Superior Court on Tuesday. The physician, 55, and her 38-year-old husband, who has worked for lefty Democrats such as Omar and her Minnesota predecessor, Keith Ellison, have a 13-year-old daughter together. The parties physically separated in April when the defendant told the plaintiff that he was romantically involved and in love with another woman, Ilhan Omar. So, uh, Jim, there's uh, always a reaction when you see something like this. Omar, by the way, denies that there's any sort of romantic relationship with this political consultant. And she doesn't want to talk any more about it beyond that brief statement. So when you see this news, part of you thinks, man, this is kind of their personal life. I'm not really sure that this is... uh, something for political people to really weigh in on and uh, perhaps get jocular about. But as Alapundit over at Hot Air put it yesterday, if this had been Ted Cruz or some other prominent right-wing politician, the cable news channels and the late-night hosts would have had a field day with this for months. So far, I haven't heard anything about it on the cable news channels. Yeah, look, Greg, my first instinct whenever somebody starts talking about the marriage of Ilhan Omar is, look, guys, we shouldn't be discussing this. It's none of our business. It's a family affair. That's a subtle joke for the under news for people who've heard particular stories. Here's the thing where it actually might become a real, uh, a more legitimate argument for public discourse. As we have over at National Review, my colleague Jack Crow notes that uh, since 2018, which was you know last year, uh, Omar's campaigns have spent roughly $230,000 to the consulting firm run by MyNet. He's a fundraising strategist. I'm curious about what actually goes involved in fundraising strategy. Hey, send out an email asking for money. Maybe it's totally, completely, 100% legit and everything checks out and everything's fine. And it's entirely coincidental that people are saying that they're having an affair. If they are indeed having an affair and you are paying oodles of money to the company that is uh, that you're, of your person you're canoodling with, well, then people might say, hey, wait a minute. Are you, you know legitimately using your donor money or is this a secret way to kind of get back to our payment to help out your uh your your side piece so to speak um look there's probably a lot more to be uncovered here it is sorted it is you know omar if true this omar would be long from the first person in politics to have an affair uh in fact we've had so many you know tawdry and, and you know really appalling scandals in politics lately an affair seems almost mundane and old-fashioned um, compared to, you know, uh, when you're seeing, you know, pedophile rings going on in Florida and things like that. Now, the other thing which I think Alapandit noted yesterday, which is true, is that uh, in addition to adultery, which is, you know, frowned upon in Islam, um, this guy is also not a Muslim. 
And this is, you know, there are some religious Muslims who look very, you know, seriously look down upon uh, dating outside the faith. And all pundit made the observation that, boy, it would be extraordinarily ironic if, never mind all the anti-Semitic comments, never mind all the crazy stuff she's ever tweeted, never mind all that kind of stuff. No, no. It's this mundane politician having an affair story that ends up tanking her chances in some future Democratic primary. Uh, I would not bet on Ilhan Omar uh, losing the primary, but uh, I think this is a new wrinkle here. And we will see if, uh, you know, further information comes out that... Uh, uh, may endanger her political career. So, uh, yeah, who saw this coming, Greg? Well, who knows what's going on with her personal life? As you mentioned at the outset, there's a lot of twists and turns there. And twisted turns, twisted turns. Twisted turns, indeed. Do you think there's ever been one day where Nancy Pelosi has had a piece of news about Ilhan Omar come across her desk <laughs> and say, oh, good. Yeah, just picturing, yeah, Madam Speaker, Ilhan Omar, just stop. Just, just stop. There's no way that sentence ends well. It's never going to be she discovered cold fusion. It's never going to be she came up with some sort of brilliant plan for Middle East peace. It's never, it's never good news when the sentence begins. Madam Speaker, Ilhan Omar just, just you know, it's, it's like Mad Libs. Insert something bad here. Yes, that's always your indication it's time to break the glass. Jim? We'll talk tomorrow. Have a good one. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to visit our friends over at joinhoney.com slash martini. Sign up. Two quick clicks. Save money. Let them do all the work for you. That's joinhoney.com slash martini. And tune in again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.